May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. Today, we're going to talk about the SEC, by which I do not mean the highly overrated Southeastern Conference of College Football. I mean the Securities and Exchange Commission. And to talk about that with me, I have my partner and a former assistant regional director of the SEC, Robert Heim. Hi, Robert. Hi, Rich. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. My voice is a little bit off today because I'm still getting off of one of these uh, formative winter colds, but I'm going to try and let you do most of the talking. Can you start by telling us what is the general jurisdiction of the SEC as contrasted to, say, a state or federal prosecutor's office? Well, the SEC is an independent federal agency, and they're tasked with investigating and prosecuting violations of the federal securities laws. So in that sense, their jurisdiction is national in scope, but it's important to remember that they're also a civil enforcement agency, and that's an important distinction between the jurisdiction of the SEC and the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice has criminal enforcement authority over violations of federal securities laws, and the SEC has civil jurisdiction, which essentially means that the SEC goes for things like monetary sanctions, injunctions, and license suspensions, and not jail time. I see. And where does the SEC get its leads from? How does it develop its cases? There's a wide variety of sources where the SEC gets its leads from. One of the primary sources is a very rigorous market surveillance program that the SEC runs in conjunction with the various exchanges, the stock exchanges in the country. And this market surveillance program involves a lot of technology where there's surveillance for aberrational trading, particularly ahead of things like major news announcements to try to catch people that may have been engaged in insider trading. The SEC also gets its cases from what's called an examination program, where the SEC has examiners that go out to various regulated entities like investment advisory firms, broker-dealers, and the like. And if those examiners, during the course of their exams, pick up any serious wrongdoing, they can make a referral to the SEC. And when I was with the New York office of the SEC, we got a lot of our cases from the examination program, and it helped us to develop leads to, to investigate and possibly prosecute And third, there's also a very big source uh, currently in the last few years of whistleblower tips. The SEC has a specialized office of the whistleblower where whistleblowers can receive certain percentages of any awards that the SEC might collect against wrongdoers, and that's also a big source of enforcement tips. Does the commission have different kinds of investigations it can pursue? They do. Broadly speaking, there's two different types of investigations, informal investigations and formal investigations. Many investigations will start off on what what we call an informal basis, and that could be a, a tip from somebody or something interesting that a member of the enforcement division comes across. And the distinction between the two is that an informal investigation means that the SEC does not have subpoena authority, so they can't compel people to produce documents, they can't compel people to come in for testimony, so they rely on voluntary cooperation. And oftentimes, if the SEC is dealing with a regulated entity like a broker-dealer or an investment advisor, those entities and their employees are going to cooperate, so there may not be a need for subpoena authority. How do you find out if your 
being investigated by the SEC? Well, that's always an interesting question because that's usually the touch point as to when somebody would start considering contacting an attorney. But usually the way it would work would be somebody might get a subpoena in the mail from the SEC where they're required to produce documents and appear for testimony at some point at a later time. Or, which is not uncommon, a person may get a phone call out of the blue from an SEC enforcement attorney or an investigator and asking them to speak voluntarily and answer a few questions. Now, the phone call is one that has particular danger for uh, clients because the SEC designs this investigative technique to catch people off guard and, in their opinion, getting maybe a more honest answer to What do you mean they design it to catch them off guard? Well, they don't call the person and say, uh, are you free tomorrow for a call at noon or we'd like to set up a call. Usually you get a phone call and there's two or three SEC employees that want to speak to you immediately. And what they do is they, they essentially put some pressure on the person to speak voluntarily. And in the SEC's judgment, sometimes that would be a way to get perhaps more honest or unfiltered answers to their questions. Will they start answering, asking them questions right there on the phone? Yes, absolutely. So particularly in insider trading cases, it's very common for people to get phone calls out of the blue from SEC lawyers saying, we have some questions. Uh, you know, we noticed you traded an XYZ stock about two months ago. You know, what led you to do that? Do you know anybody at the company? And it can really catch uh, people off guard. And I gather they don't give any sort of equivalent of a Miranda warning. Not in as much detail. They do tell the people that it's voluntary, but that's essentially the extent. Uh, once they're informed that it's voluntary, some people decide that they do want to answer questions, and some people say they'd rather speak to an attorney first. Now, I could see some clients thinking, I got a call from the SEC. They started answering me questions, asking me questions, and... I had this idea to tell them I need to talk to an attorney, but I didn't want to look guilty. What would you say to a person who says that? That's almost always a mistake because what an attorney can do for a client, it doesn't preclude the client from speaking at a future date voluntarily with the SEC, but an attorney can often find out ahead of time what the questions will be, what topics are going to be covered, and give the chance for the client to review their records in terms of trading and timing. I think it's unfair to expect a client to just participate out of the blue without having the benefit of having to review any documents. But as a former SEC attorney, I would never have taken it, and my colleagues wouldn't either. If a person wants to have an attorney, it's really not an indication of any sort of guilt or innocence. Right. I would assume the people working at the SEC are experienced, and they expect some percentage of the people they try to interview are going to want lawyers. That's exactly right. The vast majority of people that the SEC interviews do have attorneys. We're generally dealing with sophisticated financial institutions or sophisticated investors. So it's not uncommon at all for people to have attorneys before being interviewed by the SEC. Right. And even if your instinct is to cooperate, like let's say you got a phone call, you can tell from the subject matter it's something you're not involved in, that's not your fault, you want to cooperate, you want to give them a lot of information, still a good idea to have an attorney, right? Absolutely, 100%, because number one, you could never really be sure that you're, you're just a witness and not potentially a target of the SEC investigation, even though they don't formally have targets. But you don't lose any sort of cooperation credit by getting an attorney. And in fact, an attorney might be able to help you to get more cooperation credit because they can set those ground rules for the phone call with the expectation the SEC will be giving cooperation credit for that call. Yeah, when you talk about cooperation credit, what do you mean? The SEC has a program somewhat similar to the Department of Justice where 
they will consider a person's cooperation at the end of the day in determining whether a sanction would be appropriate. So this would be appropriate for somebody who perhaps violated the securities laws or did something that was questionable and at the end of the day may want a settlement with the SEC. The SEC explicitly will give people cooperation credit, which essentially means a combination of either self-reporting their conduct before the SEC contacts them, or if they are contacted before they can self-report, fully cooperating in the sense of turning over records, perhaps doing an internal investigation if it's a company, and revealing the results of those investigations to the SEC. And the SEC does give meaningful reduction in sanctions and sometimes no sanctions at all to people and companies that cooperate with them. So it seems to me if you're looking for cooperation credit, an attorney not only doesn't impede that, but an attorney is probably a good person to help you cooperate better. Absolutely, because the SEC has specific guidelines, there's case law on this point, and somebody that's not involved in this type of process day-to-day is not going to know all the finer points of how to get the maximum amount of cooperation credit from any voluntary interviews that might be done. Well, I'm constantly telling people on this podcast to get attorneys, and I know having a lawyer tell a bunch of people to get attorneys is kind of like having a popcorn vendor saying you ought to eat popcorn, but I think it's the right answer in this regard. Oh, absolutely. There's real benefits to having an attorney. It's interesting to me, though, that you might get a phone call out of the blue. You might also find out, I guess, by getting a subpoena served on you. You could get a subpoena served on you, usually in the mail, and the subpoena will sometimes help the client and the attorney to get a sense of what the investigation's about. The subpoena will have a title of the investigation. Sometimes it will be titled with regards to a specific stock. Other times it'll have a more vague title. But usually the attorney and the client together can glean something about what the SEC is investigating by reviewing the specific documents that are requested. And then, of course, the attorney will always have a follow-up phone call with the SEC lawyer to get as much information as possible. Right. I've done this drill before, and I would generally call the person listed on the subpoena and say that I'm representing so-and-so, and we have your subpoena, and we're looking to respond and try to find some polite way to ask if they can tell me anything more about the investigation. That's right. And and different SEC attorneys um, have different policies and different investigations have, have different policies. And oftentimes you can find out more information than just a, re- a review of the subpoena would, would give. Yes. But in my experience, some of those folks are not that chatty. Right. There are a lot of SEC attorneys that won't give too much information. And then in addition to getting documents, the SEC goes out and interviews or takes testimony from a lot of witnesses. That's right. Usually after the document production is complete, the SEC will then set a date for a witness's testimony. And at that point, the witness will come into one of the SEC's offices and there'll be a court reporter present. Sometimes there's even a videographer that will record it on a, on a video. And the SEC lawyers will ask them questions, somewhat similar to a deposition, but with important distinctions. In the SEC context, there's no complaint that's filed in federal court. This is all pre-complaint, so there's no pending litigation, and that makes it a challenge for a lawyer to try to figure out what questions are going to be asked. And the SEC has much broader statutory authority to conduct wide-ranging interviews to really get to the bottom of whatever topics they're looking into. Right. So you have a subpoena probably for documents, and you can glean something from that, and you've had some conversations with the SEC. You've hoped to learn something else, but you don't necessarily have much more than that to go on. 
That's right. So in a civil case, in contrast, you would have a complaint that right. spells out the claims and uh, there might be some judicial oversight about the deposition. You know, well, by the time you get to depositions in a civil case, you've probably had motions, you've had fights about discovery, you've seen the judge. I mean, you have a lot of learning before you get to a deposition in a civil case. That's right. Whereas in contrast, the SEC, uh, there's no judicial supervision at this stage. There's no complaint. Um, the SEC will control the record and you know, the witnesses' rights is spelled out in the SEC's uh, rules, but it is a lot less of a rights than you would have in a civil deposition. And the deposition, well, the SEC testimony, like a deposition, is not in court. There's no judge present, but you're still sworn to tell the truth. Right. You're still sworn to tell the truth. In fact, if you lie during an SEC investigative testimony, you can be criminally charged with perjury. So it's very important for the client to be prepared before they go in for testimony, review documents, refresh their memories so that to the best of their ability, they give truthful testimony. Can a witness in an SEC proceeding invoke the Fifth Amendment? Yeah. And interestingly enough, the Fifth Amendment is one of the key privileges, in addition to the attorney-client privilege, that lawyers that practice in this field have to become very familiar with because, number one, there can be parallel criminal investigations going on at the same time. And the SEC, as a matter of its routine uses of information it gathers during its investigation, can share testimony transcripts and documents with the Department of Justice. So lawyers that practice in this field are always um, looking to see what sort of potential criminal exposure a client could have and whether or not they should assert the Fifth Amendment. Uh, in the civil context, it's a little different than the criminal context because if you assert the Fifth Amendment during the SEC investigation, the SEC is entitled to draw an adverse inference against you. So the assertion of the Fifth can be used against you in a civil context like the SEC, whereas it cannot be used against you in a criminal proceeding. So there are certain downsides in the SEC context to asserting the Fifth Amendment. And particularly if a person is a broker, a registered broker, an investment advisor, asserting the Fifth can have dramatic consequences on their license and, and even their employment relationship. You know, they'd likely be terminated by their employer for asserting the Fifth. I see. In an SEC investigation, when do you find out if you're a target as opposed to just being a witness? It's not a specified time. And the SEC will off when you ask this but question. But I really want to know. Yeah. <laughs> They'll, they'll often say they don't have targets or they don't have uh, subjects the way they do in criminal cases. But really, you really only know um, what's going to happen towards the end of the process. Even if you have these discussions ongoing with the SEC, they'll say their investigation's ongoing. They haven't made any conclusions yet. They need to interview other people. And if the SEC thinks they have claims against you, they'll serve what's called a Wells Notice? That's right. It'll usually start with a phone call where the SEC lawyers will spend about half an hour on the phone with the person's defense lawyer spelling out the conclusions that they've reached um, in their investigation and giving the person an opportunity to make a written submission called the Wells submission. And this is a procedure the SEC instituted in the 1970s because the commissioners in Washington, the five-member commission, really wanted to have the person's, the, the potential defendant's perspective on the investigation before voting to authorize an enforcement action. 
because the commissioners were already getting what they call an action memo from the staff, listing all the reasons why a case should be brought, and the commissioners wanted to have uh, a more balanced presentation and, and get the other side of the story also. That makes sense because all of the proceedings so far have been one-sided, right? Only the prosecution, so to speak, has been taking discovery, taking testimony, getting documents, and writing down potential charges. That's right. And the Wells submission is is somewhat similar to a brief. There'll be a facts section, there'll be a legal analysis. But the way it differs is that there'll often be public policy arguments involved because the SEC in determining how to use their limited resources and the idea of sending messages of deterrence are important components in deciding whether to bring a case or not. So often Wells submissions will discuss not only facts and law, but policy rationales as to why a case should not be brought. So what happens after the Wells submission comes in? That's an interesting question because at that point, the SEC has a few choices. If the Wells submission is persuasive, which can happen, there there is a small percentage of cases where the SEC will get a Wells submission, read it, and say, there's issues here we didn't think about, there might be statute of limitations issues, and other litigation risks that would make the SEC want to essentially drop the case. Uh, it doesn't happen often. Pretty, pretty small percentage, I was going to say, Very right? small percentage, yeah. yes. The majority of cases at the SEC settle, so oftentimes the Wells submission is used for a dual purpose. It, it helps to tee up settlement discussions as a way of presenting the defendant's uh, strong points. And at that stage, if the staff and the commissioners and their support staff read the Wells submission, determine they're still going to go forward with the case, oftentimes that's when settlement talks will really begin in earnest. Have you ever seen somebody not submit a Wells submission on the theory maybe that the SEC is going to charge no matter what I say, why should I spell out my defense case in this document? Yes, a very, uh, very common concern, also not uncommon in terms of a strategic move, because if a person is convinced that no matter what they say in a Wells submission, the SEC is going to bring their charges, there really would be no reason to preview your defenses. And the Wells submission is also not considered a privileged settlement communication. So anything a person says in the Wells submission could potentially be used against them at a trial or even referred over to the Department of Justice. So it is uh, not unusual to decline to submit a Wells submission. Right. In a criminal case, you wouldn't ordinarily submit an answer to an indictment. Correct. You would just go to trial and defend yourself. That's right. Okay. Well, speaking of trial, where does the SEC ultimately bring its proceedings if they, if they can't resolve the, the matter? The SEC has two choices. They can bring cases in federal district court or they can bring cases in the administrative proceedings context. The administrative proceedings are done by an administrative law judge, which has been appointed by the commissioners. It's a much more streamlined process. There's less discovery that's involved, and it's supposed to be a quicker process. In contrast, in federal court, the SEC almost comes to court like any other plaintiff in a court. So if a person is sued in federal court, they have all the same rights that you would have under the the rules of civil procedure uh, to fight the SEC and to make motions. What kind of relief can the SEC obtain, and is there a difference between what they can get in federal court and what they can get in an administrative proceeding? As a civil agency, the SEC's relief is strictly monetary relief, like disgorgement, civil penalties, injunctions. Over the years and through various statutes that have been enacted by by Congress, there's been less and less of a distinction between the type of relief the SEC can get in an administrative proceeding uh, than they could in federal court. 
when the SEC first started in 1934 and for many years thereafter, administrative proceedings were generally used for licensed people, uh, stockbrokers, investment advisors, and it was focused on bars and suspensions and fines. And then the federal courts were reserved for just the general public, people that may have committed insider trading or market manipulation. But nowadays, through various amendments through that Congress has passed, the SEC has jurisdiction over non-licensed people in administrative proceedings. So you get all sorts of different cases in administrative proceedings. And I think from the SEC's perspective, they try to bring the more egregious cases in federal court because it's more of a public forum. Yeah, administrative proceedings are public also, but I think the press and the financial news tends to follow federal court cases more closely. So the SEC tends to bring their most important cases in federal court and then maybe they're not so newsworthy cases or not the blockbuster cases in the administrative proceedings context. Do you think it's fair to say that the SEC got more aggressive after the financial crisis of 07, 08? Yes, I think I think they refocused their efforts on corporate fraud after that financial crisis because out of the financial crisis grew uh, new reforms like Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank, which gave the SEC new tools to combat corporate fraud. And the SEC also, during that time frame, got a closer working relationship with the Department of Justice, where a higher percentage of cases, um, I noticed in my own practice as a defense lawyer after leaving the SEC, that over time, more and more of my cases had a criminal component to them. So the SEC began working closely with the Department of Justice on many cases as well to help combat uh, corporate fraud and wrongdoing. Robert, tell us a little bit more about your practice, what you do day-to-day as a lawyer for clients. My practice, a big part of it is representing companies and individuals in SEC investigations, helping them uh, get through the process, produce documents and the like. I also consult and advise broker-dealers and investment advisors and other industry participants with regards to legal and compliance matters, using my background at the SEC to to help them understand the rules and to comply with them. Okay. We're going to hear closing arguments now. So do you have a couple takeaways from our listeners for our listeners about the SEC? Yes, absolutely. I would say, getting back to my earlier point, that if anybody gets a subpoena or a phone call from the SEC, not to feel shy about contacting a lawyer before you answer any questions or produce any documents, because this is a complicated area of the law, and it's important to know your rights and where the pitfalls may lie before going in to speak with the SEC. And then secondly, if you do get a subpoena or a a request for testimony, not to panic too much. You really have to assess where you stand in the investigation, what your exposure is, and working with a lawyer can help you uh, to do that. It's a long process, you know, that six to 18 month time frame. It, it doesn't go away overnight, but with the right counsel, it becomes a lot easier to, to make the right decisions and to get through it as best as possible. All right, Robert Heim, former assistant regional director of the SEC, and even better, one of my partners now. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rich. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. 
We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.